You're tuned to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The following program is a rebroadcast of Miracle Hunter with Michael O'Neill. Welcome to The Miracle Hunter, where it doesn't matter if you are a believer or a skeptic, it's always worth the hunt. My name is Michael O'Neill. I'm The Miracle Hunter and creator of the website MiracleHunter.com. I'll be your host for the next hour as we continue our weekly exploration of the world of miracles. Happy belated Father's Day to all the dads out there, including my own. Here in Chicago, we had a beautiful weekend of weather, so it was good to celebrate that day with the family. And we'll continue to pray for the intercession of St. Joseph for all those fathers out there. Now, in the past months, we've had interviews with authors from all over the world, from Europe to South America. And today, we'll be talking with Bridget Curran, author of The Miracles of Mary, Everyday Encounters of Beauty and Grace, who is joining us from down under in Australia on today's program. We'll be talking about some of the lesser-known titles and apparitions of Our Lady today, Now, we're all familiar with Lourdes and Fatima and Guadalupe, but in her book, Bridget talks about how the many stories of Our Lady are told that are new to us, even those who are the most knowledgeable Catholics amongst us. So that should be a lot of fun. And of course, in just a bit, we'll be asking you a Catholic trivia question, so get your pens and paper ready. Later in the show, we'll be talking about how Our Lady is honored around the world on today, June 17th, in our segment, 365 Days with Mary. More information on this project can be found at 365dayswithmary.com or on Facebook, 365 Days with Mary. Now, this week in Miracle News, uh, we have the very strange story of an Indian miracle hunter. His name is Sanal Edamanku. Uh, Reported this week on BBC's website, now, Edamaruku, he became famous for going around India exposing the supposedly miraculous feats of fakirs, who are holy uh, Hindu holy men, and he spent his life as a prominent member of India's small band of miracle busters. These are men who dedicate their lives to traversing the country, demystifying certain beliefs there. And one example, on national television, one fakir, he claimed that he could kill any man by ritual chanting, and uh, Maruku, he took the challenge, and he went on the television program, and the station actually cleared many hours uh, in order to give, give this man a chance to, uh, to do this. But uh, Edda Maruku survived, and with no discomfort other than the sound of the man's voice in his ears. Now, his explorations have not been limited to uh, Hindu miracle hunting. In 2012, he was called in investigate the case of an allegedly bleeding crucifix in a Catholic church, which he discovered to be a case of bad plumbing behind the wall that caused the paint to become wet and run on the crucifix. Uh, Unfortunately, some Catholic groups were so upset at his discovery and the implication that he was accusing the church of trying to make money off of this supposed miracle that blasphemy lawsuits in India were filed against him. And when he was refused uh, a chance at bail, he decided to uh, 
take an early trip uh, on his lecture tour to Finland. He left early, and he's been hiding in Helsinki ever since, fearing his life if he were ever to return to India. Now, Cardinal Oswald Gracias of Mumbai, he tried to broker a solution by calling upon Edamaruku to apologize and on the, these Catholic groups to drop their cases in return, but neither side seems to want to compromise, so he has continued to stay in exile. And that is the very strange story of Indian miracle hunter Sanal Edamaruku, as reported by the BBC this week. To keep up to date with the latest in Miracle News, please visit MiracleHunter.com and sign up for our newsletter. You'll receive a monthly email with the latest Miracle Hunter news, including reports on the latest miracles and news stories, links to past radio episode podcasts, updates on my television series Miracle Hunters, now in development, and my book, Hunting for a Miracle, due out in fall 2014, any upcoming speaking engagements, and much, much more. So sign up for the newsletter on MiracleHunter.com by clicking the newsletter link at the bottom of the page. Now it's time for Catholic Pub Trivia. Each week I'll be asking a trivia question and giving out a prize for a caller that gets the right answer. This week we'll be giving away a framed image of a piece of artwork entitled The Faces of Mary. We've given this uh, artwork away in past weeks as well. It's a photo mosaic of over 100 images of Our Lady that forms a beautiful picture of the Madonna and Child. Trivia questions are generously provided by Catholic Pub Trivia, an organization that partners with Catholic parishes, schools, or religious organizations to host Trivia Night fundraisers at local establishments. For more information on Catholic Pub Trivia or to organize an event in your area, please visit catholicpubtrivia.com. Now, we always try to keep the questions related to the theme of the day's program, and today we're going to be talking about some of the lesser-known titles of the Virgin Mary. So here's a question about Marian titles. What is the name of the prayer listing many of the Marian titles that is named for the location of the House of Mary? That question again is, what is the name of the prayer listing many of the Marian titles that is named for the location of the House of Mary? And, of course, we are looking for the name of the prayer with that question, and we'll see if you have the right answer. And for more information on Catholic Pub Trivia or to organize an event in your area, please visit catholicpubtrivia.com. Now, as in past weeks, we'll reach into the mailbag or the email inbox, as it were, for today's question of the day. The question goes like this, Dear Miracle Hunter, God the Father of all mankind, promoted by Sister Eugenia Ravicio in her book, God is Father has the knee, the imprimatur, I think. Is this true? Blessings, Colette. Colette, that's an excellent question. Um, people are, are familiar with the apparitions of Our Lady around the world, and even the apparitions of some saints. There's been apparitions of Jesus, but uh, this is a very unique apparition, because it is an apparition of God the Father, supposedly. So uh, Mother Revisio, she reported a series of messages from God the Father, which were published in her book, The Father Speaks to His Children. Now, Mother Eugenia, she was an Italian non-visionary and mystic, and she lived from the years 1907 to 1990. The Bishop of Grenoble, Bishop Alexander Calo, he was actually mentioned in the messages, he recognized these messages um, as supernatural, and to date they are the only reported private revelation from God the Father that have been approved by a bishop, so that's very interesting. Bishop Calo, he ordered an investigation, and after 10 years, a letter stating that the messages had a supernatural origin. 
1988, the messages received the imprimatur of Cardinal Petrus Canisius van Leerde. He's a vicar general of the Vatican City-State, and his general duties were the administration of daily functions of Vatican City. Now, this imprimatur uh, signaled that, in the Cardinal's opinion, that the messages contained nothing against faith and morals, but it didn't say anything about the supernatural supernaturality of it, so that was that imprimatur. And the CDF, uh, which is, of course, the official authority um, giving the final say on private revelations on behalf of the Catholic Church, has not approved Mother Ravicio's message as authentic, nor issued an opinion. But, as we all know, it requires only the local bishop to approve something as supernatural. Uh, despite this approval and imprimatur, the bishop, the bishop, bishop said that the messages um, are worthy of belief, uh, the messages contain nothing controversial, uh, according to some, and yet other theologians still have questioned some of the theology in them. As in all other private revelation, uh, Catholics in general are not required to believe the messages of these uh, from Mother Eugenia Ravicio. Each individual Catholic can determine what role, if any, they should play in their life of faith. So thank you, Colette, for your excellent question. And if you have a question for the Miracle Hunter, please email your questions to questions at miraclehunter.com, and we'll be selecting one question each week to be read on the program. And I believe we have a caller on the line, Michael. Uh, let's see if you have the answer. Uh, is it Mark Carmel? Unfortunately, Michael, that's not the answer we are looking for today. Where are you calling from? Alexandria, Louisiana. All right, Alexandria, Louisiana. Well, thanks so much for tuning in, Michael, and we appreciate the call, but we're going to take another caller and see if we can get the right answer. Sharon, are you on the line? Yes, I am. Well, welcome to the program. Where are you calling from today? Uh, Houston, Texas. Well, welcome. Happy to have you. So I'm going to reread the question for those people who are just tuning in. The question was, what is the name of the prayer listing many of Mary, the Marian titles, and it's listed... It's named for the location of the House of Mary. What is your answer? The Litany of Loreto. You are correct. That is the right answer. The Litany of Loreto is a Marian litany originally approved in 1587 by Pope Sixtus V, and it's named uh, for the miraculous shrine of Our Lady of Loreto in Italy, where its usage was recorded as early as 1558. And the House of Laredo, according to legend, is the place where the Blessed Virgin Mary lived and was flown to Italy by angels. Well, thank you so much, for Sharon, uh, Sharon, for calling into the show, and we'll be sending you out an image of the faces of Mary. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for all you do in your show and all you do. God bless you. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you very much. And that was Sharon with the correct answer to Catholic Pub Trivia. And for anyone who wants to find out more about Catholic Pub Trivia, please go to catholicpubtrivia.com. For those just joining the program, this is Michael O'Neill, and you are listening to the Miracle Hunter Radio Show. And for more information on this program or my research on miracles, please visit miraclehunter.com. Each week, uh, for those listeners who are familiar with the show, you'll know that we do a segment entitled 365 Days with Mary. For each and every day of the year, somewhere in the world, there's a Marian title, feast, or commemoration of an apparition or other miraculous event being celebrated. It never ceases to amaze me how much the world loves the Mother of God and honors her throughout the year. Now, the Project 365 Days with Mary compiles all these feasts into one resource and uh, places it in this 
project called 365 Days with Mary. Each entry features images, a description, history of the feast day, along with information on the shrines associated with them, including visitor information and links for those people wishing to see these places. The project's available in print in the form of a daily engagement calendar, as well as online at 365dayswithmary.com. We're on Facebook and Twitter. With you follow us and like us, you can automatically receive information about each feast day and learn more about our Blessed Mother and how she is honored throughout the world. Be sure to like 365 Days with Mary on Facebook, and the print version in the form of a daily organizer makes a great gift for anyone with a devotion to Our Lady. Today's feast for June 17th is Maria im Valde, Maria in the Forest, and that's from Dolina in the Grafenstein region of Carinthia in Austria. Now, the story goes like this. The Blessed Virgin Mary appeared as the Immaculate Conception on June 17th, 18th, and 19th to three shepherdesses who were at, you know, in preparation for the public proclamation of the dogma of the Immaculate Conception in the year 1854. This uh, began the influx of uh, pilgrims and in the woods where she had appeared as the Immaculate Conception. A wooden chapel was built there. The church, which uh, was started in the year 1861, was never finished, unfortunately. A local artist painted a picture called the Madonna del Bosco in Italian, or Maria im Valde in German, Mary in the Forest, and it was inspired by the descriptions of the three shepherdesses who had received the apparition. This painting was a picture of grace that inspired faith and devotion of the many who saw it. And that was today's feast, Maria im Valde, Maria in the Forest, be sure to visit the Project 365 Days with Mary on Facebook and online, 365dayswithmary.com, to find out more about the project and how Mary is honored around the world. And this is Michael O'Neill. You are listening to the Miracle Hunter Radio Show. Um, now, we're all familiar with Lourdes and Fatima and Guadalupe, but there are hundreds, maybe thousands, of different titles of Our Lady that are new to even the most knowledgeable Catholics amongst us. There's a title of Our Lady relating to every geological feature, Our Lady of the Hills, of the mountains, of the ocean, of the lake, of the sea, as well as many things blooming, different flowers and trees uh, in nature. Uh, She's also named, uh, different virtues are named for Our Lady, and uh, that's how she gets many of her titles. And today we're talking with Bridget Curran. She's the author of The Miracles of Mary, Everyday Encounters of Beauty and Grace, and she's joining us all the way from Australia today for our program. In her book, she talks about some of the great, famous titles of Mary, as well as some of the lesser-known titles and apparitions. We welcome to the show today, Bridget Curran. Hello, Michael. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. And I know uh, our time zones are pretty different right now. Can you tell the listeners <laughs> what time it is in Australia? It's at 5.15 a.m., which is bright and early, so if I make any sense, it'll be a miracle. <laughs> we'll try. Well, well, wonderful. Thank you for making that sacrifice. I know uh, people will be excited to, to hear about your book. And uh, the name of your book is The Miracles of Mary, Everyday Encounters of Beauty and Grace. And uh, can you tell the listeners a little bit what inspired you to uh, research all these titles of Mary and put together a book like this? Well, it was an interesting process, Michael, because I'm actually, by nature, quite a skeptic. And although I was raised Catholic, I always had a difficulty understanding the Church's teachings on Our Lady and was quite um, 
quite resistant to a lot of the titles that she'd been given. I'd always felt like a lot of our, um, a lot of other of our Christian brothers and sisters that she had been exalted too much. But I would ask a lot of questions to my friends that were better educated than me to try and understand Our Lady. And I'd pray quite frequently to understand Our Lady and how I was supposed to love her. So I actually think this book was kind of a response to that. I was at the time working as a film researcher for a documentary and in Rockingham in Western Australia at the time, back in about, oh, we're going to back to about 2006, uh, there was reports of a weeping statue which had got quite a lot of attention in the mainstream media and a local national television company wanted to make a documentary about this. And because practicing Catholics are a bit rare in the Australian film industry, I'm not sure what it's like in America, but (laughs) we're not quite, you kind of stand out a little bit if you're a practicing Catholic. So I was employed to do research on this documentary, which worked quite well for me because I could apply my faith, but I could also apply my skeptical side and ask questions about the discernment process here. Um, And the research in, in... Part of the research, I was asked to find a group of pilgrims that we could follow so we could see personal experiences of faith. And in my desperation, I put a post on our Catholic Youth Ministry board asking for people that had a devotion to Mary. And it must have been something about the way I worded it because it caught the attention of a publisher of a secular, um, of a secular publishing house called Allen & Unwin, which... Uh-huh. Some readers might be familiar with is the publishing house that originally published the Tolkien books back in the day. And they contacted me and said, look, we'd like to do a book on Our Lady with that is accessible to people of all backgrounds, non-Catholics as well. And I prayed about it and thought, well, I may not be the person for this because of my own scepticism and, mm-hmm. and so forth. But I thought this is... Pr- and. I thought this is probably something that I'm called to do. And so I undertook it and it became quite a journey of faith and growth for me as well. So it was quite a blessing really in a lot of ways. I think it was um, an answer to prayers about where about my own faith by forcing me to <laughs> forcing me in the best possible way to use my gifts as a writer and a researcher to learn about our lady and all her, all the devotions that have happened over the years and in different countries. So, it's, yeah, it's quite a blessing, quite an unusual way to write a book. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I think I think that's beautiful that you uh, had that whole journey uh, from skeptic uh, all the way to believer. And, uh, you know, I, I, think, I think that's probably the, the proper way to view these things. Uh, they're not really required for our faith, so it's okay to mm-hmm. take a skeptical eye and look at them. Um, so I, I think that's pretty fascinating. And I myself, uh, you know, I... I'm the miracle hunter. I try to uh, investigate miracles and and have sort of a take a step back. And I'm a I'm a believer, but I also need to look at things skeptically as well. So that that has a great appeal to me. Your story. So thank you for sharing that. And um, when you look at the various miracles and apparitions throughout history and the ones that have been proved by the church, what what do you what do you think is the the reason for for this? What what would you say to a skeptic who or somebody who's curious, why does Mary appear? Why does she come to humanity in, in these great times of, of difficulty and, and trial in, for the human race? Well, I think that's an excellent question. It's a bit difficult to have a clear answer because there's different theories as well about 
I'm sure you'd know from your own work, the age of Mary and that Mary is coming more in these particular times because of the different trials facing modern culture. But then she's also appeared throughout history and I think that there's actually quite a range of, of reasons why she'd appear. And that's also why I think sometimes there are, uh, there's a variety of ways in which she appears. So she might appear to someone as an individual who needs support if people feel like they um, have had a personal experience or apparition of Our Lady. I wouldn't necessarily knock that because sometimes it may be that experience for them, but it may not be something that needs to be shared. It may be a That's personal right. thing. Yeah. Right. So there's certainly an element of discernment that needs to be um, used. As you say, it's an investigation, and it's an investigation also for the individual who's experienced it. But then in other cases, it's something that could be for the wider community. One of my favourite apparitions was Our Lady of Knock in Ireland, where Part of it appeals to the skeptic in me because she appeared to a group. So I thought, oh, yeah. look, there's lots of people <laughs> that can witness this. But also because um, she didn't speak in that apparition. It's become an apparition that people with hearing difficulties have a particular uh, interest in or devotion to because in some way by Our Lady not speaking, she's speaking to them. Okay. It's a way um, of appearing in... Um, offering some kind of consolation to people from all different backgrounds. So some of the larger apparitions where there's been investigation, approval by the church and some analysis, it's a bit clearer to say why she's appeared. You could say it's because she's trying to reach out to a certain group and offer comfort in Rwanda. She appeared before, um, before great trials in that country in civil war. So uh, certainly... She's always a figure of peace and um, and a call to conversion and to our Lord and to the Catholic. Right. No, I, I think I think that's a, a good way to put it. And those are some of the themes that are found in many of the apparitions throughout history, at least the ones where messages are given. And um, as you're well aware, there's been many apparitions throughout history. Um, there's the famous ones we're all heard we've all heard of, but. There have been many claims uh, throughout the entire earth of all the nations of the earth. What, is, what does the Church do when an apparition claim is made? How does it investigate? How does it discern uh, whether one is a, a real vision of Mary or whether it's a fraud? What does the Church do? Well, that's a good question. And again, it's a, it's a process where it usually goes through the hierarchy of the Church. And the first protocol is the local bishop of the Archdiocese. So to get a uh, approval for an apparition, whoever has had an experience of a lady should go to their local priest. And I think the key in these situations is obedience, because our lady never calls anyone to um, to go against any aspect of the church or our faith. She's always calling us to to be obedient and humble, like she was. And so when you when you're investigating a case any kind of case that you're unsure of, it's best to take direction even when it seems unusual. There's quite a few cases in history where people get excited about what they consider an apparition or um, something special that's happened to them and immediately go public with it, even sometimes when it's contrary to the directions of their parish priest or their bishop, not out of any vindictiveness, I believe, but just out of um, enthusiasm, as you would naturally have for Our Lady and for the experience that can often lead things astray. And I've heard um, 
in some of my research, people at bishops and priests have said to me that they felt some apparitions that might have had a legitimate basis in the beginning were led astray or askew because of human um, responses to it, which is something that I think we need to be cautious about when looking at LA. And certainly I had experiences when I was travelling around talking about my book where because it was for a secular audience, I'd be speaking to all sorts of groups and sometimes new age groups, which, as you may know, have come to embrace that lady. Sure. And there were many times when I would have groups coming to me and saying, oh, um, we had a, a session and our lady appeared <laughs> miraculously to all of us and um, she's speaking to me and telling me what to do. And mm-hmm. my, first, my first advice to them would be to find a Catholic priest and discuss it privately because that's always the first step and then follow the hierarchy of the church to the natural conclusion. I've, I've had that exact same experience as you when I'm uh, out, out giving a talk somewhere. Um, I'm very grateful for the people who come out to, to listen and want to learn more about the miracles of the Church and the apparitions of Our Lady, but you, you do get a lot of those questions where people have had their own experiences that they wonder what to do about it, um, mm. and they, they like to share those. So so I, I do hear a lot of those, those stories as well. Um, one of the... One of the aspects of your book that I thought was really nice and a little bit different from maybe other books on the subject is that you you wove in some uh, personal stories of uh, people who had a, uh, a certain uh, healing or devotion. I think there was a story um, from Our Lady of Vilan Kani in India where you uh, had a little story uh, at the end of the chapter about uh, a woman who was healed. She had a uh, a blood disease, and she was healed. And I thought that was very interesting. In addition to telling the story of the apparition, uh, the the basics of the story, you also had these very personal uh, stories interwoven in the book as well. Can you talk a, a little bit about that thought process of why you included them and how that added to the the value of the book? Sure, um, that was an interesting interesting part of it because. As, a, as you've experienced and as you've too, people did come up to me, when, even in the research process, and tell their stories. But I was conscious that although there was a lot of integrity and heart in some stories, that the discernment process was still in very early stages. Um, in cases like that, I opted to tell the stories, but within the wider context, and also give people the opportunity to tell their stories, but remain anonymous. So... I yeah. could be pretty sure that I wasn't giving undue attention to something that may still be in a discernment process. That was for some of the newer ones. Some of the older ones, as you were saying, were, they, there were stories connected to them, but they weren't always. Um, there was there was they were in different stages too. Of um, well, different sources would get I'd get the information from, and I'd have to check them. Right. And often I would be contacting bishops directly in different ways. I had to contact the Bishop of Akita by fax, which was interesting, with Japanese and English and time zones. But he was very helpful. And just to confirm that yep. story... Would you, mind, would you mind sharing more about uh, your conversation with the Bishop of Akita? I know that's a very controversial apparition in a certain way, where it has a certain level of approval, but it's currently not being promoted by the bishops there. What, what did you learn in talking to that bishop? Well, it was very limited because of the language language difference. But basically, oh, sure. I, yeah, so I wrote very simply. I've, in my research, oh, um, I had found that this that this apparition had been approved by the bishop but it hadn't gone any further. Sure. 
Right. So I thought I thought I'd, at, earlier on my my thinking was I wanted Vatican approved apparitions to be told in detail and other people's stories to be told in less detail. But with the, because stories in Asia were quite rare and often quite oppressed, I thought this was interesting that it was that it was kind of advertised a little bit. And he basically affirmed that I that yes he had investigated it and he considered it. A, a valid miracle. Yeah. So I thought that's that's enough for me because that's the church hierarchy speaking. And sure, and, that, and as, yeah. as you mentioned before, all it takes is the local bishop to give approval to a, mm. an apparition for it to be considered worthy of belief for the faithful. So it doesn't even require that the Vatican intervene with a statement or any kind of other form of approval. So you're exactly right on that. Um, so in your in your book, I, I really loved how you had such a wide variety of Marian titles that you covered, and uh, I really uh, I really enjoyed a quote that you included in your book. Uh, you said, uh, "Love gave her a thousand names," and that was the Flemish hymn on the many titles of Mary. And I think I think that's a little bit uh, confusing to people how Mary could have so many names or how she could be so different across all cultures uh, and be the same woman, but. I really love that quote that you included. Love gave her a thousand names. It sort of uh, is a way is a way to think of it uh, very nicely. And um, you uh, you included the the very famous apparitions of Guadalupe and Nanak and Lourdes and Fatima, and then you included uh, many of these that many uh, people wouldn't have heard of. Would Would you be willing to go through a few of these with me and tell a little bit of the story to the audience on some of these apparitions? Well, certainly. Um, a lot of these apparitions were from story. Uh, well, I should explain too. I have a background as a historian and anthropologist, so I'm very interested in other cultures and making sure that I was. And Bridget, I know we got disconnected there, but uh, I've got you back on the line now. Ah, oh, thank you. Sorry about that. One of the problems of calling Australia. <laughs> <laughs> sure. No, I, we're call- you're calling in from a long distance here, and. This is Michael O'Neill, and you're listening to the Miracle Hunter Radio Show. For more information on this program or my research on miracles, please visit MiracleHunter.com. Today we're talking with author Bridget Curran, who wrote The Miracles of Mary, Everyday Encounters of Beauty and Grace. We were just kind of talking about how uh, in your book you do a great job of covering the various titles of Mary, and not just the very famous ones of Guadalupe, Lourdes, and Fatima that we're familiar with, but you really get into detail with uh, some of these lesser-known uh, apparitions and stories. So um, do, would you like to pick a couple that you're, uh, you're familiar with or that you enjoy the most, and we can go through a couple of the lesser-known titles of Mary and share them with the audience? Oh, definitely. I think uh, one of my favorite personal ones was Our Lady of La Salette in France, where she appeared in September 1946 on the Feast of Our Lady of Sorrows. Now, that was a particularly interesting one, and I'm not sure it's well-known enough. I think that's partially because of the um, who Our Lady appeared to. One of them was a 11-year-old boy who was described as a hyperactive liar, and a 14-year-old girl called Melanie who was illiterate and a beggar and a farm laborer. Well, they were both literate, mm-hmm. and they both had limited education. And I think although they had quite an, an amazing experience of Our Lady, Afterwards, they really struggled to live according to the church, and they did their best. And I think what was interesting for me in that story um, was that 
it kind of affirmed one of the things that I was always uncertain about, the fact that there seemed to be a certain pattern to apparitions of Our Lady, where Our Lady would appear to the most holy and saintly people. And I wasn't, it just seemed to be a consistent pattern that I didn't, that seemed a little too clean to me, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And La Salette was interesting because it was Our Lady appearing to people that were really, um, on my first, it was my first instance of coming across a story of Our Lady appearing to people that were really uh, struggling with poverty and with their own vices and their own issues as we are today and attempting to help them and them attempting to help themselves but showing that Our Lady appearing is necessarily an indication that you're a saint or that, or an indication that the struggle of life and living Christian virtue was over. I think the fact that they were attempting and very honest about their weaknesses is something that is quite inspirational to people today that are struggling um, with aspects of life and just aspects of certain um, of certain sins and, and so forth that we all struggle with. And for that, I think that was quite an apparition. And again, one that was quite controversial because of, because of the visionaries. And I yeah. ended up contacting the shrine to find out, well, just to make sure that I'd worded it correctly, not to inaccurately demonize anyone, but or scandalize anyone, but also to make sure that I had the story correct. So I was very happy to hear back from the shrine when I'd sent them my draft chapter and they said that I'd gotten a good take on La Salette. So that good. was certainly one that I was very interested in. And I know, um, I know that one is also a little bit controversial in the sense that there were some secrets given to the children and the Church has sort of uh, gone back and forth a little bit on what the real secrets were uh, given at La Salette. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, it, that, was re- that was very smart to contact the, the shrine there to, to make sure that, that you got everything straight. So now what about, yeah. some, of these, what about some of these other uh, titles you have listed? For example, you have um, Our Lady of the Snakes in Greece, uh, or Virgin oh, yeah. of the Snakes, yes. Um, there are some interesting ones because I wanted to get uh, some stories from other faiths as well. So I contacted Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox. And that was quite an interesting process because from a skeptical point of view, I started becoming the person who tried to defend the Catholic position on, mm. on the faith. And there were a few times when I found myself sitting in Orthodox Church trying to explain they don't worship Mary. <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of worked quite well. Um yeah, the version of the snakes is an interesting one because it allowed it was a, a way to reflect also on the feast of the Dormition, which the Greeks celebrate, which is their equivalent of our Catholic um, uh, of our Catholic our Catholic faith of Our Lady and uh, the Ascension. So it was quite a it was an interesting to see that that diverse um, uh, that diverse kind of. Uh, way of looking at Our Lady, but also it was um, unusual because it kind of brought in animals and nature into our understanding of Our Lady. And it talked about, and in this story we talk about the island of Catalonia where there there was an appearance of small snakes that were considered signs of good fortune and these little snakes had little cross on their face. And as they they entered the church in, in this island in Greece, they kind of come over the icons of Our Lady. So it's kind of unusual. It's kind of a uh, an interesting mix of folk tradition and Marian devotion. And these snake and 
just the way even all aspects of nature kind of turn to Our Lady. So it's a very unusual one. And it was one that um, that kind of falls back into tradition very far too. I mean, there were stories of pirate attacks on this island and Our Lady heard people's prayers and turned them into snakes, which is very un- very unusual when we think about in our Catholic tradition. You don't hear any stories of Our Lady like that. So no, it's certainly no. unusual, <laughs> but it was. I think it was also, um, again, it's unique in that it's kind of a, it's hard to sometimes draw the line between folk tradition and and real stories of faith. So and it's very in, very um, important to present them as stories that come from history that inspire devotion and primarily that can be the main important thing about them. Anything that leads us to Our Lady and ultimately to God is a good thing. Yes, and I I think you do uh, a, a nice job of covering. Um, like I said, titles that are known and unknown, but covering all cultures because uh, Our Lady does come uh, to people throughout all of history and to all cultures uh, as their mother. So I think I think you present that well. And one thing that uh, really surprised me in your in your choice of uh, Marian titles is you have two titles coming from Kuwait, actually uh, one Mary of the mm-hmm. Desert and Mary Queen of Arabia, and and those those that's a location that most people don't. Uh, associate with Marian devotion. What about uh, either of those two titles? Well, that was interesting. The Mary Queen of Arabia story actually came through the U.S. Um, I managed. I was doing some research, and a lovely lady living in Washington contacted me, and she was telling me a bit about her life growing up and her experiences of Our Lady. Um, she grew up in, or she spent many of her formative years in in the Middle East and in Kuwait and remembered devotion to Our Lady there. So that's really more of a reflection on her childhood memories and there's also an image of Our Lady of Kuwait which she mm-hmm. she gave to me that was from her from her own memories of the of her experience. And I think that was really important to look at because it was also an opportunity to um, recognize uh, priests in Kuwait and in the Middle East which is who are obviously struggling and very much in need of our prayers, particularly at this time. And just a way of reminding us that Our Lady was was really was really significant and is still significant to a lot of people in the Middle East. So this was really, um, and this was also a story of how Our Lady helped people through their personal grief. The lady who I spoke to in the U.S. and I used a lot of her direct story, but again, I've kept a lot of it um, fairly anonymous or just by first name. Sure. It's also a story of how um, how she was grieving the loss of her own mother and was reminded of Our Lady of Kuwait and took great consolation from Our Lady as, as someone that could love her with maternal love and bring her to Christ through this period of mourning. So it was quite, it, although it was a multicultural story, at its heart there was a very, um, very human, universal story of, Love and Our Lady bringing us through times of trial. In this case, in a kind of an exotic way, because as you say, not a lot of people know about Our Lady of Kuwait. But um, certainly, it it showed a a very human side to the devotion. But it also, because the actual origins of the devotion were a little murky and very difficult to um, substantiate, 
simply because of the, of the state of the church, I think, in Kuwait and finding contact with people and finding um, funding background to some of these stories, it kind of, um, for me, it kind of cemented the validity of including stories like that. Absolutely. I think, uh, like I said, you, you've covered the world over with your choices. I mean, you have um, a mother of the word in Rwanda. You have Our Lady of Light, uh, those famous appar- apparitions in Zaitun, Egypt. Uh, we did a program on that one as well. And um, in two two apparitions, um, another, or you have three from from uh, Asia with uh, Our Lady of Akita, but also Dong Lu and Levang and uh, in Vietnam. And I know that uh, Pope John Paul II actually wrote a beautiful prayer uh, for Our Lady of Levang as well. And what what can you tell us uh, tell the listeners about Our Lady of Levang in Vietnam? Well, that was a very interesting one. Um, during the 18th century, there was a lot of uh, turmoil in Vietnam, and Al, as as I was often the way with Our Lady, she was a accompanying figure during this during this time when she appeared in 1798. It was at a beginning of persecution for Vietnamese Catholics, so a lot of them were hiding in the mountain villages, and that was it was supposed to be on these evenings that Our Lady appeared as people were running away from persecution and. Uh, she appeared as a figure in traditional Vietnamese dress with a crown, which is uh, I thought was very beautiful because it certainly showed that not only was she appearing to people in need, but she was appearing in a form at which they would recognize. Sure. And she did this again in Rwanda where she's described as a, a lady with darker skin. Right. So certainly I found that very fascinating. And when Our Lady appeared to these villages in, in the middle of nowhere, essentially, it gave people a lot of hope and encouraged people to create a chapel in this space, which eventually became quite a large, as it happens with many apparitions, became quite a large and significant site for people to visit. So it was quite a it was quite a beautiful story, and it was around this area too that people that were becoming ill from local diseases and from their experiences learned to make medicines based around this um, apparition site. So it was this place of spiritual and physical healing for many people. And certainly something that, a devotion that was covered internationally too. There's an image of Our Lady of Bang that was actually taken in Western Australia because there's quite a lot of, um, there were quite a lot of Vietnamese communities that have moved over here since the Vietnam War. And a lot of people that brought that devotion with them. So it's quite outstanding to think of how a devotion that starts in a country hundreds of years ago can come over to the furthest corners of the world. People wouldn't think that a devotion in Vietnam would be spread to Perth in Western Australia, which is one of the most, which is the most isolated capital city in the world. And you can drive along the freeway and there's a gigantic statue of this Vietnamese Mary which is a, quite a beautiful um, reflection of of how much she can influence people across cultures and in uh, the most unexpected ways. Absolutely, I had I had that very same experience. Uh, I was uh, in the southwest part of the United States in New Mexico, and I was uh, shooting the pilot for uh, my television series, Miracle Hunters, and 
we went to uh, this uh, Chimayo Chapel, which is where they, it's sort of, they call it the Lourdes of the Southwest, where they have this, this dirt, which uh, the, the people there, it's, a, it's blessed dirt, and they, they use it like holy water to, on, their, on their wounds and infirmities. And, um, and right, right outside of the chapel is a large statue of Our Lady of Levang. I, I just could not believe <laughs> you know, of all the statues in the south in the southwest of the United States, I would not expect that statue. So I had that same exact reaction. How beautiful <laughs> that that devotion could spread all the way across the world. So um, mm, she gets around. Yes, she does. She <laughs> I like does. in Guadalupe is similar too. There's a bit. Uh, we're right on the coast of the ocean in Western Australia, and there's a Catholic. Um, there's a Catholic family who did some building around there, and there's a huge image of Our Lady of Guadalupe right on the coast of Western Australia. So it's all these different devotions, that it, and you're seeing them in the most unexpected places, I think, is a really beautiful testament to Our Lady. Absolutely, and I think I think your book accomplishes that quite well, and maybe you can talk uh, just a bit. We'll be wrapping up here in a minute, but talk a little bit about uh, how Our Lady touches the whole world with her apparitions, what she comes to all cultures. What What would be your sense of how your book addresses that point? Well, I think it's really interesting because it goes across so many cultures in so many faiths as well. One of my other favourite apparitions, which ties in quite nicely with your quiz of the day today, actually, was um, Our Lady of Walsingham, because mm -hmm. that, not a lot of people know about Walsingham either, but it's called England's Nazareth, because a, a noblewoman in the 12th century had an apparition of Our Lady saying, look, there are, well, I'm paraphrasing Our Lady here, <laughs> but basically there were a lot of dangerous pilgrimages in that era, as you can imagine, people from England trying to make it to the Holy Land, which is a long and dangerous journey at the best of times and pretty pretty awful for medieval England. So a replica of Our Lady's home was built, much like Loretto, but Walsingham's often forgotten. And it, But in its, in its day, great kings and queens of England used to travel there, including Henry VIII, who created the Reformation that split the church. So it was um, a very significant apparition site, but it also was also a site of healing and peace many centuries later when the Anglican Church rediscovered Walsingham, and it's now a, a pilgrimage site where Anglicans, Catholics, and Orthodox churches are situated and a place where there can be some kind of ecumenical dialogue. Um, stories like that I find are quite lovely and quite unknown, and even in the greatest period of my personal um, faith journey when I was quite desolate. I had an aunt who lived a half an hour from Walsingham and used to send us bottles of holy water from there, which mm. is kind of an unusual gift to receive when you're a little kid. Sure. But, but <laughs> obviously I appreciate it so much more when I was researching the story and being able to visit Walsingham many years later after, all that, after appreciating all that happened there really brought it life and I and I would certainly recommend that as a, as a pilgrimage site for people to visit today because it there is such a sense of peace after that's beautiful um, yeah thank you yeah Walsingham is one of those that it's it's been around uh, for a very long time and and most uh, I know Americans especially have not heard of, of that name our lady of Walsingham so um, you, you you cover quite quite a few titles of our lady in this book and and titles that people would not necessarily recognize. So I think people will want to pick up this book and and tell the <laughs> listeners where they can where they can find your book. Well, um, the Alan and Unwin is the publisher of the book in Australia and also in the US. So it can be brought online on Amazon, 
or okay. on the Ellen and Unwin website, which is at ellenandunwin.com. Uh, so, yeah, it'd be, lovely. it'd be lovely to hear from many of your listeners that get a chance to have a look at it. And while I've got you, I should also thank you, Michael, for your own contribution. You probably didn't realise it, but I was looking at the Miracle Hunter website quite a lot when I was researching the book just to make sure I was on the right track. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> so I'm thank ha- you so much for that. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm very happy to hear that, and, and your book is, book is wonderful. So uh, keep up the good work. Do you have any other books in the works that you're working on now? Well, they're interested in doing another story of Our Lady, uh, another book on Our Lady, but I think I've pretty much covered a lot of it. I'm actually thinking about writing a version more aimed at children because, um, again, there are, there are kids that uh, don't know much about Our Lady and uh, how she works across cultures. So I think that would be a nice little project to work on. Wonderful. Well, best of luck on that book, and thank you so much for joining us all the way from Australia today. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Michael. It's my pleasure. God bless you. God bless you. And that's all the time we have for today's show. I'd like to thank our guest, author Bridget Curran, for joining us on today's program. The name of her book, The Miracles of Mary, Everyday Encounters of Beauty and Grace, and you can get that book on Amazon.com. Next week's program, in honor of the June 26th anniversary, we'll be discussing the controversial alleged apparitions in Medjugorje. We'll be talking to Arthur, author Artie Boyle, who recounts his own personal Medjugorje miracle story in the book Six Months to Live, as well as to filmmaker Sean Bloomfield about his recent Medjugorje film, The Triumph. It should be a very interesting program. And for those people in the Chicago area, next week on Thursday, June 26th at 7 p.m., I'll be speaking at a Legatus conference. For more information about this event, you can go to MiracleHunter.com. And be sure to visit MiracleHunter.com as your resource for miracles and keep up to date with how Our Lady is honored around the world at 365dayswithmary.com. Thank you for joining me today on Miracle Hunter, where it doesn't matter if you are a believer or a skeptic, it's always worth the hunt. You're tuned to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The program you just heard was a rebroadcast of Miracle Hunter with Michael O'Neill.